Welcome back, everybody. This is part three of episode seven, the BTK Serial Killer. We're True Crimes and Headlines with Jules and Joe, and I'm Jules. I'm Joe. And we want to thank you for being here. We are a women-owned. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I want to give a shout out to Meg for giving buying us a coffee this week. Meg is an incredible friend from high school, one of those friends that you can go years without talking, and then you just kind of pick back up, or the friend that... Uh, you can go years without talking, but you know if they need you or if you need them, you're there. Meg, what's your secret? I've been trying to go days without <laughs> talking to Josh. She's the best. Thank you so much for your <laughs> Thank support. Thank you, love Meg. Megan. And she was so sweet in her note. She told us our butt looks great. <laughs> Clearly, she was talking to Joe. <laughs> if, you've, if you've met Joe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Known for my ass. That's right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, not being an ass. I get those mixed up all the time. <laughs> Back to the serious episode, though. We are a women-owned company and the audio house, and we are the proud owners of that company. Woot, woot, never go into business with your best friend. They said they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> um, you can leave us a five-star review because that helps us grow. That's the number one way that we can be seen is when people are scrolling, looking for a new podcasts, they're going to look at the reviews. Please, if you love us, leave us a review, uh, preferably five stars. If you hate us, just move on. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Help me. Um, but we love you. We're so glad you're here. Your butt looks great and you matter. So let's go ahead and let's round out part three of BTK. You ready, Joe? I'm ready. Let's dive in. All right. Okay, so where we left you in part two, it was 1979 with Anna Williams escaping the possibility of a brutal death. Remember, Joe, that the only reason she escaped death was because she made an unplanned stop at her daughter's house before driving all the right. way home. Okay. And to recall really quickly, I'm going to go back and just review really fast from parts one and two, the victims up to this point. So let's take a second to do that. We had the Otero family mm -hmm. with mom and dad, Julie and Joseph, which by the way, I realize it's Jules and Joe. Oh, that's creepy. It, Jules and Joe. That's, that's awesome. Um, and then sweet little boy, Joey nine and Josephine 11. And then we had Catherine Bright and Shirley Vian and Nancy Fox. Here we are, 1984, a really good year, if I may add. The Olympics were in Los Angeles and we were born. <laughs> Officer named Ken Landwehr heads up a task force created solely to track down BTK. These are some bad-ass people. This task force will be named... Are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. Guess. Guess what? Guess what? <laughs> Billy Badass. Billy Badass. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> That's the first thing. Billy Badass. <laughs> Ghostbusters. Oh. Yeah. After the popular movie, which was also released in 1984. Question. Bill Murray. Did you ever have a crush on him? No. Oh, then me neither. One of their goals is while they are trying to locate BTK, they're also organizing all of the evidence. So the notes, the voice recordings, articles of clothing he left behind. Now recall, there are many items with bodily fluid, yeah. which we will later know later is his semen. And remember, everything BTK does from the trolling to the stalking to the killing, it's all fuel for his sexual fantasy. His sexual fantasy is the BTK, bind, torture, and kill drive. 
an actual penetration of his victims does not appear to occur in most cases from what we know of. Most cases, but he does penetrate some victims, it sounds like. As of right now? No. No. Okay. It does not appear that that from what we know. Okay. Um, that was not his MO nor his goal. I imagine though if he the, if he did penetrate victims with as open and transparent his he was in court, he would have stated that. Yeah, and he states his his sexual release was masturbation set off from the strangulation. That was what was the foreplay for him. The okay. there was never a fantasy of actually penetrating. Shortly after the Ghostbusters task force is created, another victim is strangled to death on April 27th, 1985. Let me introduce you to family man, Dennis Rader. Dennis Rader, I see your face. What are you thinking? I'm just listening. I see you got little little words in your eyes. <laughs> just listen, an active listener. Just being a good therapist over here. It's <laughs> <laughs> That's a first. <laughs> Who gave us a podcast? Okay. Dennis Rader, a 40-year-old Boy Scout leader, devout church member, and involved father of two to son Brian and daughter Carrie. You know, he's a loving husband, and he is in a Boy Scout meeting with his son. And it is, remember, this is April 27, 1985. Mm -hmm. So in this meeting with his son, he tells the Boy Scout troop, hey, I've got a headache. I got to go. I got to go home. And instead of going home, though, he actually pulls into a gas station, buys a beer, and ensures that he is seen by onlookers as he lets the beer spill out of his mouth and all over his clothes. I know. You got a question mark face? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a question? I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to put the pieces together. Yeah. It's kind of confusing, right? As far as anyone knew from observations, Dennis was drunk. Many people witnessed it. The cab driver could smell it. He has the driver drop him off at Park City. So Park City, Joe, is a suburb of Wichita. And Wichita, Kansas is where all of the BTK killings are concentrated. Right. Okay, wait, wait. Let me make sure I'm understanding and following the story. Yeah. Um, so he's a scout troop leader, says he has a headache, has to leave, grabs a cab, has cab stop at the gas station, gets a beer, and for some reason, intentionally lets the beer fall out of his mouth. And yes. then the cabbie drops him off at, what was it called? In Park City. Park City. Okay. Yeah. It's a neighborhood, a uh, suburb of Wichita. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Therapist listening. <laughs> <laughs> so he drops him off in front of a woman's home. And this woman's name is Maureen Hedge. Maureen Hedge was 53 years old, and she was Dennis Rader's neighbor of 30 years. They lived in the same neighborhood. She was said by those who knew her to be kind, loving, and wonderful to know. Now, she did live alone. She was a widow. So when Dennis Rader arrives at her home and sees her car is there. But and he's still her neighbor. Yeah. Okay. He doesn't believe she's actually home though because there are no signs that she's actually home but her car's there uh he doesn't you know go walk to the door and knock like a typical neighborhood when you go and say hi right. to a neighbor 
You know, nor does he really sense any fear for his neighbor, for any type of killer on the loose. Remember, everyone is still freaking out about BTK. It's still a known unsolved case. But it's been five years. Yeah, it's been a long time, but it's still people, people are still checking their phone lines when they enter their house to make sure their lines weren't cut. Oh, okay. You know, there's still some fear sure. there because he was never caught, mm -hmm. but I'm sure there are some guards down after X amount of time goes by, but he doesn't really have any of this kind of fear for his neighbor, you know, and Dennis Rader doesn't actually fear the local serial killer BTK. And that's because this 40 year old boy scout leader, church leader, father, and loving husband is BTK. Oh, Okay. He <laughs> plot <Well>, twist. <laughs> he cuts her phone lines and quietly enters her home. And he realizes, okay, she really isn't actually here. So he goes to hide in her closet and he waits for her to return. Now, Marine does return later, but she unexpectedly has a man with her. And this man had driven Marine and uh, him all around. That's why her car was there, but she wasn't home. And he actually doesn't leave until around 1 a.m. And BTK, a.k.a. Dennis Rader, is still in her bedroom closet this whole time. Waiting. What a psycho. So it's then when the man leaves that Marine starts to get ready for bed. And Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, exits her closet, flips on her bathroom lights, and jumps on top of her and proceeds to bind her, torture her, and kill her. He then proceeds to drive to his church with her body in the trunk of her car. Why is he going to church with her? Well, he was a leader in their church, and he has access. He has keys because he's a trusted member of the church. So trusted. And he has access whenever he wants. So in Marine's own car, she's in her trunk, deceased. BTK, a.k.a. Dennis Rader, is driving her to the church. He unloads her, carries her down into the basement. He puts up black tarp in the windows so that nobody will be able to see in should they want to try to see in. And what he does next is quite disturbing. So what he does next is actually, I don't think it's surprising, Joe, given the magnitude of this demented individual, like the type of monster he is, you won't be surprised, albeit you'll be disgusted. You ready? Mm. He takes photos of Miss Hedge and poses her in many different compromising positions. Which, like sexual positions? Like bondage type okay. sexual positions. Then he again drags her body up the church basement steps. He places her back in the trunk of her own car. And he proceeds to drive her back near their suburb of Wichita, the Park City suburb. And he continues to show his monster instincts by dumping Marie Hedge's body into a ditch near their homes. Marine's body is discovered eight days later, and her cause of death was reported to be strangulation, but police do not connect her murder to BTK. I wonder why not. Well, I think there's something that's different about it this. It is different. Yeah. But man, he's getting more risky in his behavior as well. Like, 
the risk of seeing someone seeing him carry her from her house to the car, from the car to the church, everything he did in the church, anyone could have walked in at any point, and then carrying her back out to her car and getting her out of the car into the ditch. Like there are many points in which somebody could have observed him do this. He's getting a lot riskier in his behavior. He is, but also remember this is this is I see what you're saying. And I agree with you. But it's also a suburb at night. These are typically like family homes and it's dark out and he's not bringing his own car to the scene. There's not a lot of suspicious if he can get her into her own car if he pulls it into the garage, or I don't know how he did it, but let's say he was able to put it into the garage or was able to scope out and nobody was out there and it's dark, puts her in her own car. No one's going to think it's suspicious if her own car is leaving her own driveway. Yeah. But I mean, before even a phone call spooked him and now he's willing to mess with the body outside the house in the church. Like, but you you hit the nail on the head because you're right. He's never taken a body outside of the killing point mm-hmm. ever. And I don't know why he's doing this. You know, he's 40 now, so he's older. His kids are older. He's also drunk. I guess that could decrease in his inhibitions. Quote, drunk. Yeah. I don't think he was actually drunk. I think he was using it as a cover so that people would think he needed a cab to stumble home and he got dropped off by his home. And went home. Oh, an alibi. Yeah, he was trying purposely to to look like he was drunk and to smell like it. He wanted to be seen drinking the beer. Yeah, but then so his mo has changed briefly. Um, we don't know. Like you talked about, like he's getting more sloppy. I don't know if he's more desperate. Like he's leaving a function with his kid to go do such extreme things, and that's bizarre. It's risky. Yeah, risky, bizarre, and five years since the last killing, what was the trigger? And we will talk about what was going on in his life outside of all this in the next episode as well. And here, I'll read Dennis Rader's own words that were transcribed from his confession in court in the conversation with the judge. So this also shares what he did before he was seen pouring the beer all over himself. Quote, Well, actually, kind of like the others, you know, she was chosen. I went through the different phases, a stalking phase. And since she lived down the street from me, I could watch her coming and going quite easily. On that particular day, I had another commitment, came back from that commitment, parked my car over at Woodlawn and 21st Street Bowling Alley at the time. And before that, I dressed into, well, I had some other clothes on. I changed clothes, went to the bowling alley. I went in there under the precepts of bowling, called a taxi, had a taxi taxi take me out to Park City. I had my kit with me. It was a bowling bag. So he is developing these alibis. Yeah. So he left that function, then went to the bowling alley, had his strangulation, torture, kill kit in the bowling bag, then gets seen at the gas station with the beer spills it so he could the driver could smell it then has the driver drive him right by her house which coincidentally is right by his house so if the driver said i dropped right. him off here so it looks like this guy went bowling and got drunk 
The judge then asks Dennis Rader how he knew Marine Hedge, and he proceeds to tell him that they would wave when passing by and do the neighborly chats, that it was nothing personal, that they were just neighbors. Now we're going from April 85 to September 16th, 1986. Bill Wegrell's life will forever be changed for the worst. His high school sweetheart and wife, Vicki, She's then just 28, and she's mother to Stephanie, 10, and two-year-old son, Brandon, is murdered. So Bill was driving home one day to have lunch with Vicki and uh, their son, Brandon, when he sees his wife's car on the road. So it's driving in the opposite direction. Like away from the house? Yeah. And they, so they cross paths, and he's thinking, that's my wife's car. That's not my wife driving it. That's a, that's a man. That's odd. He continues to drive to his house because, you know, he's supposed to have lunch with his little kid. Right. Maybe somebody else had the same car. Yeah. You know, you can totally explain that away in your own head. So he continues home. And when he enters the house, he observes his toddler son, Brandon, playing alone on the floor in the middle of the house. And so Bill begins to search the home for his wife and he finally finds her. She's in their bedroom and she's on the floor behind the bed. She's rushed to the hospital, but she is ultimately pronounced dead. Strangled? Yes. And for the next 18 years. Where's the 10-year-old? School. Oh, you said that. I'm sorry. I don't know if I said that because that's kind of how it went with the Ateros, yeah. where the younger kids were at home still. But I, I'm assuming she was at school because she was 10. That would be third and fourth grade. She's rushed to the hospital, but she just a few hours later, she's ultimately pronounced dead. And for the next 18 years, her husband, Bill, will remain the main suspect in his wife's oh, murder. See, again, of course it was him because he comes home and finds her dead, quote unquote, dead at work. Like, man. His kids would continue to hear whispers at school about how their dad is a killer. Oh, and geez. Bill would continue to proclaim his innocence all while grieving his wife's murder, dealing with the trauma of discovering her, raising his kids as a widower, and continuing on his life as best as he could. Man, that kind of gives <laughs> meaning to being a defense attorney, right? Like all of these people that potentially have been wrongfully accused of crimes. It happens, clearly. Yeah, that's why I really love the Innocence Project, too, is all their work dedicated to clearing crimes, but they're all crimes that can be cleared through DNA evidence. That Those are the ones they, they take on, knowing that they can clear them. Um, but there's just these individuals who have dedicated their lives hmm. to helping the wrongfully accused. The man driving his wife's car on the road was Dennis Rader. AK calls him the his PJs projects. Yeah. So according to BTK, he just happened to walk by her home and he would walk by that route often and he would hear her playing piano from inside her home. And it's then that he decided that he would kill her and he would meticulously plan out how he would do it. And this is how he did it. Around 10 a.m. that day, after her husband had left for work and her daughter was at school, the killer cut her phone lines, sticking to his usual MO. He then dresses as a telephone repairman 
and knocks on her door, tells her that he is there to fix her phone line. He rushes her by gunpoint into her bedroom and tries to first bind her, but she fights back. Vicky fights back with all of her might, and she fights back so tough that she does actually leave marks all over BTK's Good. body. Yeah, get him, girl. He cannot control her enough to just, you know, bind her. And then, you know, he subsequently tortures and kills. So he has to quickly move on to strangulating her. Or would that just be strangling? Strangulation. Strangling. Strangling. So he quickly strangles her to get her to stop fighting back. And it's then he again takes photos of his victim. Just like the last victim, he poses her in different bondage type positions and continues to take photos. Now he does take Polaroid photos and then he takes her car and takes off. And thus it's then that Vicky's innocent husband drives past. Why would he take her car? BTK in his wife's car, they cross paths just after his wife is killed. So when he arrives at the house, he arrives just moments too late. Mm-hmm. Because the unknown variable that BTK could not have known out of the norm routine was that Bill was coming home. Yep. Could you imagine playing that over and over in your head? So what's he do with her car? Because now husband is home. He can't just bring the car back. No, he leaves it somewhere else. Oh my gosh. And it won't be till five more years later. On January 19th, 1991, when Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, kills for his final time. And because he gets caught? Because he goes dormant. And when he resurfaces, which we'll get into, he does not have enough time before he gets caught to kill again. Okay. And this time again, he chooses an older victim as he has come to realize- Less that, fight. Yeah. And he's older now too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he said they appear to be more vulnerable and they're easily overpowered. And again, he doesn't branch out very far from his home that he shares with his kids. Right. I still want to know about his family. You will know a lot in the next episode. His last victim is a woman named Dolores Davis. Dolores Davis was living on her own just a mile and a half away from Dennis Rader. He had first noticed her when he saw her outside And then he marked her for his next PJ. PJ. Dennis Rader was again in a Boy Scout event with his son. This time, they were going on a camping trip. So, during a July 19th, 1991 camping trip, Dennis has to come up with an excuse to plan to leave just to execute his final killing. So once he leaves the troop and his son... He then drives to his own parents' house, and it's there that he changes out of his Boy Scout leader uniform and puts on what he calls as his hit clothes. Do we know what his excuse was? No. Okay. I mean, the last time he had a headache, I'm sure it was just something. And what we will see during this final killing is the duplicity of BTK as quote unquote family man and then as the killer. He was in the middle of being an involved father, almost like he's wearing father costume, mm-hmm. like plain father puppet. But we all know what's under there. 
Right. It's like role-playing for him. Very bizarre, right? What I've kind of been chewing on this whole time is really reflecting on and wondering if he would meet criteria for disassociative identity disorder. Are you familiar? I am. Can you explain it? So what many people would call multi-personality disorder um, is not in the DSM, um, but the closest thing would be dissociative identity disorder. If you missed Bonnie and Clyde, Joe introduced the DSM. Uh, It's the diagnostic... What is it? (laughs) She has it with her. It's a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Okay. And so this has all of everything you'd ever need to know for mental health and diagnosis. Yeah. It just kind of is a um, helpful tool with assessment and diagnosis in mental health. So when you look at disassociative identity disorder in the DSM, um, it's the diagnostic criteria include disruption of identity characterized by two or more distinct personality states, which I would argue he, he would meet criteria for. Um, they have to have um, kind of discontinuity and sense of self, sense of agency, um, alterations in affect, behavior. So basically there's, there's a gap between um, at least two personalities in somebody's existence. So, so BTK and Dennis Rader. Yeah, could put like that. dad and killer. Yep. Yep. Um, and I would say, again, there's discontinuity between the sense of self and sense of agency there. There's alterations in affect and behavior. Kind of, he's fitting the mold here. The part where he does not fit the mold is that generally there's an, a, a dissociative sort of aspect to it. Um, in other words, like gaps in recall of everyday events, important information, um, and or traumatic events that are inconsistent with ordinary forgetting. This man, when he sat on the stand, can tell you every detail of every murder he ever did. So I would argue that he wasn't dissociating in these events. And so I don't think that he would meet criteria for disassociative identity disorder or what what people think of with that as multi-personality disorder. That's interesting you say that because... Somebody else had commented on that in an article I read was that they have met multiple serial killers and this is one of the only ones who remembered every Every single detail. detail. Yep. Yep. So per the criteria in the DSM, he wouldn't meet criteria because there's not a gap in recall of events or memory. So he describes almost not disassociative in the sense that he, he remembers every detail, but... I think he's almost trying to describe himself like that. When he says he cubes, he's cubing. He'll be dad for five years, and then he turns the cube. And on the other side of the cube, he's BTK. Yeah. It's a very bizarre mm-hmm. way. And I have some strong feelings about his own description of that, which we can get into during the rant episode. Okay. There is no rant episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in my head. All right. So – You know, that's his own description. So he then drives to the local church and he parks his car there. And if someone was to drive by, they could say, oh, I saw Dennis's car at the church. church. Yeah, he's at church. Small community. (sighs) Jeez. He continues his plan on foot by walking from the church to Dolores's home. And he waits patiently outside her home hiding, stalking for Dolores to show signs that she's gone to bed. Once he believes she has done so, the killer uses a brick to break into her home. Now, this obviously causes a lot of noise, and Dolores quickly comes out of the bedroom to investigate, and it's then that Dennis Rader resorts to his original intruder, M.O., which 
was to bind her, torture her, and kill her. But first, he used to always tell the victims, I'm a convict. I need your car. I need some food. I need some money. And I'm going to tie you up. What does this man, I know that he's supposed to be on a Boy Scout trip right now, but what's this man do for work in which he can just be out of the house in the evening and his wife on nights that murders happen and his wife not pick up on it? Well, before he was working for ADT security, you know, you go out and do calls during the day. Most of the the other ones were during the day. Like his last victim, he puts Dolores in the trunk of her own car. He then drives her to a nearby lake. Now, this is still within the same like park city suburb of Wichita. And he leaves her body under some trees and he just covers it slightly with twigs and branches. He drives her car back to her house. He cleans all the surfaces to erase any evidence. And then he walks back to the church and he changes out of his quote unquote hit clothes back into the Boy Scout uniform, and he rejoins his son in the freaking troop for the (laughs) remainder of the camping trip. Trust no one with your kids is the moral of the story. We're just out here igniting anxieties across the world. (laughs) The next evening, BTK Dennis Rader returns to where he left the frustrated. (laughs) He returns to where he left Dolores. And then it's then that he takes photos of her. Now he does also use the Polaroid to take these photos. And it's assumed that the photos are still in the state's custody. Does he keep these photos? What does he do with these? He keeps them and he keeps them in his house. Again, risky behavior. And later they... It's almost like he wants to be caught. And later they get... Confiscated. Confiscated. Thank you. That word was like. So here we find ourselves in 1991 through 2004 without hearing a word from BTK. 91 through 2004. No calls to police. 13 years. No letters. I love when you do math because I'm like, (laughs) come on, if I just repeat it, she'll count. (laughs) Math is so hard for me. (laughs) No calls to police, no letters. There are no sick poems, no killings, which could resemble BTK style. That is until January 2004 when Dennis Rader sees a 30-year anniversary article special on the killings of the Otero family and his local paper, the Wichita Eagle. Uh Uh-huh. The same newspaper that he would write to telling them I am BTK. This is an entire adult life of murder that he's engaged in at this point. 30 years. 30 years. And the Being married to someone for 30 years not knowing he was murdering somebody. I just got goosebumps. Wow. (sighs) The article contains information on BTK and it recounts everything that transpired. This seemingly reignites Dennis Rader to enter his BTK role. And just two months later, in March of 2004, BTK announces that the BTK serial killer has returned. Our fourth and final installment of the BTK serial killer is going to be next week, Joe. Make sure you you arrive. (laughs) And it will be the most mind-blowing and ludicrous, like ludicrous as in almost hard to believe this is real life part of this episode yet. And we will learn what Dennis Rader was doing 
in between his killings and what his life was like while he was actively killing and stalking. That duplicity of man and monster, it convinces me that some people are just plain evil, that there truly yeah. is just yeah. evil, no matter if they say they had two sides. Role-playing as a family man will never erase his evil soul. I'm a firm believer, though, Julie, that people are born good, we're innately good, and bad things happen that make people turn, quote-unquote, bad. I don't know what I believe, but I don't believe BTK was born good. So maybe okay. I'm disagreeing. I'm really maybe fired up. Maybe my mind. I'm really fired up right now, though, so I just need to calm down. And <laughs> I'm interested to hear what happened in his childhood. A lot of caffeine in me, too. <laughs> um, yeah, and just what he does in his life at the same time as being a killer will blow your mind. So join us next Wednesday for the conclusion of the Dennis Raider, the BTK Bind, Torture, and Kill Serial Killer Episode 7. Thank I'll be here. <laughs> I'll be here too. Your butt looks great. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you. I love you. I love you too. Thanks for being my bestie. <laughs> and Lee. I'll see. My mama is a podcaster. Bye too.